Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. This is Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. One of the pandemic era waivers that has been extended is the acute hospital care at home waiver. Congress has allowed it to continue to 2024. But what will happen after that? Dave Kirwar, CEO of Inbound Health, believes a permanent payment model will be available in the not-so-distant future. I'm so pleased to have Dave Kirwar with me from Inbound Health. Welcome. Thank you, Liza. Nice to be here. You only launched your company in October. Obviously, you think Hospital at Home has legs beyond the pandemic. How can you be sure? Yeah, it's a great question. So we actually launched Inbound Health as a company from within Alina Health System in Minneapolis back in May of 2020. So um, way back in May of 2020, we began building a hospital and skilled nursing facility at home program strictly for the Alina's population. And over the past three years, we've really scaled the uh, the capabilities that Inbound Health has um, from a care model, a technology perspective, a payment model perspective, supply chain, labor, et cetera. Um, and just last year, to your point, we sort of took it out of Alina and we created, uh, we, we started to commercialize it more broadly and took on some private capital to do that. The reasons why we are so lean forward on why we think that um, hospital home has great legs beyond the pandemic, it goes a lot back to our experience. So when you look at our scale, we've done about 5,000 episodes or over 5,000 episodes across both hospital home, which we define as really replacing a hospital episode, um, meeting a patient in the emergency department that would otherwise need facility level acute care and recreating that episode in the home, as well as skilled nursing facility at home, which is a little bit different where we're meeting a patient typically at the end of an elective surgery or at the end of a a hospital stay where they would otherwise in those cases have to step down to a brick and mortar facility and we're bringing them into the home for that. We have scaled that not just to 5,000 patients, but we've really uh, scaled the variety of diagnoses we've served. So we now have done this across 350 disease states. Um, And there's certainly a Pareto effect in there. I'd say probably 50 disease states probably accounts for 80 to 90% of our episodes. But COVID is the vast minority, thank God, of patients that we're seeing today. Um, So we know that it's applicable um, when it comes to all sorts of different conditions, certainly pneumonia, congestive heart failure, diabetes uh, with complexities, um, and also on the elective surgery side, you know, ortho procedures, cardiac procedures, where we're able to conduct a portion of that episode at home. The other reason why we have a lot of, besides our experience um, from a clinical perspective, is the business results we've been able to generate for our customers. Um, And that has really nothing to do with COVID. Um, So, when our customers have implemented our model, they've been able to lower the number of days that the patient is in the hospital. And for many health systems that are constrained and they have too few beds and too many patients, um, the idea of being able to um, you know, limit the number of days the patient stays in the hospital and get them into the next setting of care more quickly is very attractive. We've been able to help them free up capacity. So again, many of the systems we're working with are capacity constrained and they can take a patient that we're able to see in the home and free up that bed for potentially a sicker patient that really does require acute level care. Um, And then finally, from a surgical perspective, obviously, you know, surgeries for a health system are are key to their financial and operational performance. And a lot of the ORs in this country have become a bit congested um, and they can't do as many cases because 
what's happening is the patients that are getting, getting those cases have no place to step down to. There's no place for them to go from a skilled nursing facility perspective. So we're able to relieve that OR capacity. So, you know, we have confidence around the business results. And then frankly, I would say the last thing is, is the clinical results and experience. So when you look at the average severity of illness of our patients, it's actually 24% higher than the average medical patient that's in, in a lot of our hospitals. Um, COVID diagnoses and patient cohorts is our fastest growing uh, segment. Uh, we have a lot of com- conviction and confidence that this is going to prove very valuable well beyond the pandemic. The pandemic was good for hospital at home because of the CMS hospital at home waiver. Congress has it ex- has extended it through 2024. How important do you think it'll be to maintain that waiver in order to keep interest in hospital at home from hospitals, or is it going to just start to kind of um, grow naturally on its own? So great question. Um, And I would say two things. So we fully believe, um, based upon discussions that we've been a part of in Washington, D.C., that there will be a permanent payment model, that it's not going to be a waiver program anymore. It will literally be a benefit that will probably be offered to fee-for-service beneficiaries of Medicare. But we think the waiver program will look different, or the program, the permit program will look different from the waiver program. Today, the waiver program pays a hospital the full DRG payment. And we believe the permanent payment model will seek to incent health systems, not just to shift site of care, but to use hospital at home as a, as a lever to lower costs, to take money out of the system, um, which we know can be financially sustainable based upon the model, what we've done with some of our health systems. We also believe that they're going to not just do hospital replacement, which is a, a very important part, but also skilled nursing facility replacement, which is frankly a larger issue, not just from a cost perspective, but from an access perspective for a lot of the Medicare beneficiaries. So we know it will look different, but we, we, we fully believe by the end of 2024, they will announce a permanent payment model for this. And we think that's required for a lot of some of the health systems that are sitting on the sidelines to come in. Now, all that being said, your, your other point of the question is very important. When we first launched this program, we actually didn't use the waiver program. We went right out to commercial and Medicare Advantage payers in the markets where the, the health systems that we serve, and we negotiated contracts specific to hospital and to sniff at home. Um, and that's a service that we are ha- we're providing all of our customers because we believe you can create a really financial sustainable program with CMS but you can also really start to do that with your private payer patients. And in that model, you can actually innovate more quickly on things like risk. Um, so it's a little bit of yes to both of your questions. Yes, there will be a permanent program that will look different than we have today. And yes, in the meantime, and, and even after the permanent program, we have to continue to innovate with some of the private insurance carriers as well. Mm-hmm. How receptive are hospitals to hospital at home at this point you said they are there are some kind of hanging out on the sidelines what's preventing them from jumping in and are their reservations something that you need to have a kind of more permanent solution to for example are they somewhat concerned about losing their market share it's a great question um so I would say, you know, in general, if I had to guess, maybe half of the systems that are out there might be sitting a little bit on the sideline thinking, okay, I know care is moving into the home. I know that's going to be the future in the next 10, 20 years, um, but I'm, I'm going to wait because I want to see that permanent payment model. You know, I want to know that there's going to be a permanent model. I mean, health systems are going through 
the most challenging financial period in probably over four decades. And so this, this notion of getting into something without a permanent payment model is daunting to some. However, the other half of our, that we've been talking to are really leading the way. And they're saying, you know what? Build me the business case. Show me that you can make this profitable in one, in one year if both CMS fee-for-service members, Medicare Advantage members, commercial members, and Medicaid members. So one of the things we do with health systems, any health system we engage for free, is we take uh, three years of it basically claims data um, and we, we build them a roadmap. Here's where you would deploy hospital at home and separately skilled nursing facility at home at these sites, with these payer classes, with these disease states, um, at, in this order to get to a 12-month ROI. So to your point, yes, there might be issues of revenue cannibalization, but when you take that in combination with the reimbursement you can get from the payers, in combination with the larger financial issues you might be able to solve for by you know backfilling beds with higher revenue patients, here's exactly how you get the profitability. And so that's really what's pushing a lot of um, the systems we talk to that want to move forward forward because they see the light. They say, okay, even if there isn't a permanent model, I know there will be eventually your, you inbound health is committing to help me get there. And we put our fees at risk against that. So um, that seems to be helping a lot of the systems sort of move forward. Do you expect, and obviously it's probably too early and I'm not sure you would necessarily have an opinion on this, but do you think this permanent program will be a, a legislative program or a regulatory program? I think it probably be, um, I don't necessarily know the answer. I think it will. it is something that will be mandated um, and then come out of CMS. I think that um, we might also see a more permanent program that gets put in place via legislation well, uh, play, that, that's more of a fee-for-service, you know, episodic reimbursement model, whereas entities like the CMS Innovation Center also comes forward with programs that incent how do you, how do you combine home-based care modalities with facility-based care modalities to take cost out of a 60-day episode. Um, so I think we might see both, but I would imagine on the permanent side, it would certainly be legislated that, that it occur, and then the regulators will actually create the the, the payment models and the wraparound mechanisms around things like utilization management and care care quality and reporting and things like that. You kind of know all angles on this thing, don't you? Because you have worked on the provider side for Mount Sinai Health System and you've worked on the insurance side for Aetna and you need both to come together to make this happen. How difficult is, is it to do that? Um, and what are the challenges to getting both sides to come together? It's a great question. Um, it's, as we all know, it's very difficult to, to get anything transformative in healthcare done, but you know, it's also possible. And in my experience, it takes sort of, you know, to really get the health systems and the health plans activated around a concept like this, you have to be able to show three things. First and foremost, you have to show clinical quality. Can you actually take patients and meet and exceed the quality and patient safety um, metrics that they, they receive through status quo care? So for us, that means, can we take a patient that is as sick, if not sicker, that would have otherwise gone to facility level care, bring them into the home and, and show safety and quality is as good, if not better than if they had been in the facility? I think the second is cost savings. Um, and there's, a, you know, there's always this question, particularly from the payers of, um, hey, I love this care model, but am I going to inadvertently add costs to the system? Are you going to start taking patients that maybe 
could have gone home with a home health episode or just gone home with self-care and you're going to try to send them home with some sort of care modality to drive up costs. So how do you prove that you you can actually save costs of the system is, is, is the absolute key. And then on the other side of that, I think um, particularly for health systems, you have to show the top line growth too. So that's really that path to profitability, but what, how, how might this model actually increase the number of patients and consumers that health systems can serve? How might this model on the insurance side help increase member attraction and retention, particularly into their Medicare Advantage plans? How might it even increase their STARS ratings um, for Medicare Advantage, which would increase their top line? So, you know, there's a clinical quality and sort of, you know, safety benchmark that's absolutely the first question and, and answer that has to be made. And then there's a question of, okay, can this really take out costs or is it going to inadvertently add costs? And can this really help us grow revenue? Um, both obviously related to the financial picture, but to get everyone around the table activated around that, I think you have to address those three topics. And that's something we've done. Um, I'm really proud that we've done, and that's how we've gotten a lot on contract with a number of health plans, at least in the Minnesota market. Who are you working with more, traditional Medicare or Medicare Advantage? It's probably today more traditional Medicare, although Medicare Advantage is there's a, a greater opportunity with. The traditional Medicare utilization management protocols are not necessarily designed to take into account the option to send a patient to the home. So there's a very narrow Venn diagram, if you will, where the, the patient's sick enough to require facility level care and would pass UM protocols for this but also functional enough that they do well in their home. And so it's a bit more stringent and it's more difficult, um, but obviously the end is higher in traditional Medicare. M Medicare Advantage, because it's through commercial payers, they can they can more quickly change their UM protocols and really think through that. So, um, you know, I, 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 just because the end is higher, I think, you know, ultimately there's, there's a, a larger addressable market on the Medicare fee-for-service side, but I think the ability to implement and innovate quickly on, is probably uh, faster on the MA side. Which pays better? Well, right now, certainly the Medicare fee-for-service program does because they're paying the DRG payment. to a, if, I'm, if I'm putting my health system CFO hat on, I'm getting the full payment for that. Now, Medicare Advantage, many Medicare Advantage plans are honoring the waiver program, and they're following the waiver rules, and they're reimbursing full amount. Some are, are instituting, we, we also want to have private contracts. But right now, I think it's, it's a bit artificial because, again, I don't expect that when it becomes a permanent payment model, they will pay the full DRG, you know, in perpetuity. But right now, Medicare fee-for-service, since it pays that full amount, would be paying more than Medicare Advantage in most cases. What is hospital at home's worst enemy, if you will? What, what's holding it back? What are the impediments to its success and growth? Yeah, I, you know, I think one of those we talked about is that permanent payment model. We really, it's, it's, it's going that, you know, we need to, to, to create something that's more permanent for the fee-for-service population. I think workforce is another one, right? Um, as you might have said, like, you know, we're, we're all suffering from um, not being able to attract enough workforce, but this model is, we really need to think about how we've trained our clinicians over time. Every single clinician going back hundreds of years in the United States has been trained to provide care for the most part in some sort of a facility, in a hospital, in an ambulatory clinic, in a skilled nursing facility, et cetera. And we're now asking them to go into the home, which is a totally different uh, care setting for them. And it requires a different type of, you know, compensation model, a different care model, a different type of training. So that's um, something that we have to be careful carefully. And then I think the experience and outcomes, 
we are very focused on publicizing our clinical results, not just to, you know, tout our own, our, our, our own horns or anything, but it's also to start to give the referral sources, namely the physicians and the patients and their family members, full confidence that we can offer a care model that is as safe and high quality as an in-facility care model. So um, I think that, you know, historically just people's thoughts of like, am I going to be able to get this care as safe at home? And, and what, what's, what's the experience going to be like is what's held us back. But I think as we publicize more data as an industry, not just as a company, but as an industry, and we put those vignettes out there and we start to create awareness campaigns with the referrers and the patients and family members themselves, it will really help to, um, to, to remove that impediment. I want to talk about another topic that seems to be to be quite important when you're talking about hospital at home, and that's the family caregiver. Because from what I've read, a lot of the work falls on them. Is there, are, are you thinking about this? Is there a way to get around it? And how do you, how do you ensure that someone's going to be get, receiving that kind of day-to-day care, whether it be, you know, getting somebody a glass of water or helping them put their slippers on, that's not somebody who, you know, has to be there from the family? It's, it's such a good question. We think about it all the time. So we have, as an anecdote, you know, we have about a 95% uptake rate. Once, once we get to the point where they, we've identified a patient that's sick enough to require clinical care, but they're functional enough to be seen at home, that we've gotten the order placed with the referring physician. When we go to the patient, we have about a 95% uptake rate, which we're very proud of. But when you look at the 5% that don't, it's, always, it's, it's almost always about, well, I can't be home between nine and five. I have to work. And so my spouse or my parent or whatever, um, you know, is going to be home alone. And I, don't, I just don't feel safe doing that. So um, that is one of the larger, you know, impediments that, you know, I think is part of this care model and sort of fits into that workforce thing. And the thing about the family care model, caregiver, is they're an unpaid caregiver. So we're literally asking, we're stealing in a lot of cases their time. But I think this is solvable, you know. So I'm outside of New York City and in New York York State, the Medicaid program has started to reimburse family care members for the care they're providing so that a family member can get the care from their loved ones and their loved ones will get paid. And so I think, and they've they've shown really powerful results from that since this program has been going for for the last two years. So my hope is with this model, uh, this new payment model that's eventually made permanent, that they think about issues like this. Um, Another area, not everyone has a family member, unfortunately. So what what we do and what we're doing is experimenting with the ability to send um, private care, you know, associates into the home that are there for comfort, are there to address issues of loneliness, are there to help with mobility, and are there to sort of provide advice. Um, And so that's obviously not a family member, but it's a paid person. I think, you know, as these models gain suit, I think this is going to be, if we don't address it, it could be one of the things that's the demise of these models, because they're really, we, we can't expect family members to go unpaid and make themselves available forever. And I think we've been very fortunate that the family members we work with had do that. And we're very happy and proud and fortunate of that. But we need to solve this issue as an industry. Well, certainly a lot more to talk about and a lot more to um, unpack. Um, So I hope to talk with you again. This was a terrific discussion. Dave Kerwire with Inbound Health. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Liza. We really appreciate you uh, talking with us. 
Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. 